Your Bibles once again, please, to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke chapter 1. As we all know, the English language is constantly changing. Words have a way of taking on new meanings. But sometimes people begin to use words in ways they were never meant to be used. Let's take a moment to consider the word incredible. That's incredible. To do that, let's imagine we are watching the TV talk show called The View. If you're not familiar with The View, it features a panel of five individuals, such as Joy Behar and Whoopi Goldberg, and they are experts at every conceivable topic. Now, imagine this panel is discussing the pandemic, and Joy Behar says, I think everybody should listen to Tony Fauci because he's an incredible doctor. Now, I assume what she means is that he's an amazing doctor or a reputable doctor. I don't think she means he's incredible, because if he were incredible, meaning he's not credible, why would I listen to anything he has to say? But of course, in this situation, I am forced to agree with her. He is an incredible doctor. Here's another example of how words are misused. And it will bring us closer to our text for today. Let's consider the word miracle. The word miracle is now used in ways it was never meant to be used. That is largely because it is a sacred word that has been hijacked by the secular world. And so everything from medicines to foods are described as miraculous. Imagine we went on a field trip to the grocery store. How many products do you think we would find described as being miracles? There is miracle face cream. There is miracle cleanser. And of course, miracle whip. <laughs> now in my view, whipping together some mayonnaise, some, some eggs and vinegar, essentially making mayonnaise. There's nothing miraculous about mayonnaise. Now, Joy Behar might think that's an incredible miracle, but I do not. So what is a miracle? By definition, a miracle is an event that cannot be explained by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be a work of divine agency. Quite simply, a miracle is something that only God can do. When the secular world misuses, even abuses, a word like miracle, it has the effect of diminishing, of cheapening the entire concept of a miracle. People are right to think that there is nothing miraculous about a face cream or a kitchen cleanser. And so when we, as Christians, talk about miracles, 
true and genuine miracles recorded in the Bible, many people dismiss them as incredible, as not believable. And so today, we will return to a crucially important miracle that begins the Christmas story. And that miracle is Jesus being born to a virgin, a work that only God can do. Let's look, please, at Luke 1, verse 26. Again, Luke 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. As Mary is introduced, there is one thing that's made abundantly clear. She is a virgin. And yet we know that as Luke continues to lay out his account, that this virgin who has never been with a man will give birth to a son. And so from the very beginning of the Christmas story, we are presented with a mystery. The mystery of the ordinarily impossible situation of a virgin giving birth. The non-believer will dismiss the details of this passage straight out. That's just a given. But even for some Christians, it can be a source of difficulty. We live in a world where the miraculous is discounted and science has been elevated to a position as if science is the final authority. It has come to a point where you're not even allowed to question science. They say it is settled science. Well, in our matter, in our modern environment, the idea of a virgin giving birth is especially difficult to accept, even for the Christian. And so some tend to skip past this important detail and try to ignore that Mary was a virgin. Many people want the Christmas story to begin at Bethlehem because that is a very romantic setting, the manger under the starlight. But the fact is the story of Christmas begins not at Bethlehem, but at Nazareth. And it is crucial that we not pass it by because what we decide in our hearts and minds about the virgin birth it is vitally important to see how to is vitally important to how we will see the entire new testament what we decide here will affect every other decision we make as god's revelation unfolds from his birth to his crucifixion to his resurrection. The question becomes, does God's work in miracles, does God work in miracles, or is he constrained to do only what meets our expectations, our approval, our limited understanding? Is God constrained to do only what science says is possible, or, is it the case that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or even imagine? Let's, this morning, I would like to demonstrate two things. First, why we can know 
the truth of the virgin birth, that it is an historical fact, and secondly, why it is important to believe in the virgin birth. Luke begins his account regarding Mary by telling us of the arrival of an angelic messenger named Gabriel. Gabriel is one of two archangels that are identified by name in the Bible, the other being Michael. This angel's name, Gabriel, means the strength of God. Gabriel, the strength of God. Earlier in chapter 1, Gabriel, Gabriel appeared to a temple priest named Zecharias. Some have it, Zechariah to announce that his wife, Elizabeth, would bear a son. This son would be given the name John, and he would come to be known as John the Baptist. And it was he who God would appoint to prepare the way of the Lord. If we could backtrack just a little bit, let's go please to Luke chapter 1, verse 11. Luke chapter 1, verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense in the temple. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. The angel then goes on to explain how John would fulfill the Old Testament prophecy and it would be John who would prepare the way of the Lord. Let's jump, please, to verse 18. 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. In verse 19, the archangel identifies himself. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And so Gabriel is one of the angels of the presence which refers to those angels who stand before God's throne in order to praise him. And these archangels carry out God's orders to intercede in the affairs of man. Notice also that verse 19, at verse 19, Gabriel says, I was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings, this good news. If we will go back now to 26, where, angel, where uh, Gabriel visits Mary, if we go back to 26, we see a similar angelic assignment when Luke describes Gabriel's announcement to Mary. Verse 26, now in the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin 
betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Notice that the angel has been sent by God. Our English word angel comes from the Greek word angelos, and it literally means messenger. An angel is a messenger of God. Another introductory detail is that Gabriel was sent to Nazareth. And it is this detail that begins to lay out the humble beginnings of the Messiah. To the people of Israel, especially those Jews who lived in the southern region of Judea, northern Israel, especially the town of Nazareth, was considered the armpit of Israel. You may recall that in the Gospel of John, after Philip was called by Jesus to follow me, Philip ran to tell Nathanael the news. He says, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, meaning they found the Messiah. And who is it, does he say? It is Jesus of Nazareth. And you may recall Nathanael's dismissive reaction. Nazareth, could anything good come out of Nazareth? God's choice of sending his angelic messenger to Nazareth not only anticipates the humble beginnings of Jesus, but it also signals that the life and the work of the Messiah is not going to occur according to man's expectations, but according to God's divine plan, his miraculous plan. We are then told to whom Gabriel was sent. Verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Not once, but twice, we are told that Mary is a virgin. As if to say, don't miss this. Twice we're told she's never been with a man. She is betrothed, that is engaged, to be married to a man named Joseph. According to the marriage customs of the time, Mary is likely just 13 or 14 years old. She's a young teen. Joseph, he's maybe 18 or 19, an older teen, two teenagers being married. Mary's father would have made the necessary arrangements for the engagement, and this engagement was a two-step process. The engagement period lasted for one year, and during this time, the future bride would continue to live in her father's house. And though she lived in her father's house, Mary and Joseph would have been referred to as husband and wife. Even though they're just engaged or betrothed, they're not married, they are still referred to as husband and wife. But during this time, as they lived separately, the girl would remain a virgin. Now here's what's vital for us to understand. The first century Hebrew culture 
was tremendously different than our own. If during this time a girl were to become pregnant, it would require punishment. It it would require punishment. In fact, when Mary was found to be pregnant, according to the Mosaic Law, Joseph was, in his, was, Joseph was within his rights to have Mary stoned to death. Both she and the man she was supposedly with. This kind of sexual sin would bring shame. Shame on the name and reputation of both families. I had a discussion with somebody just yesterday about shame. There is no shame in our culture anymore. Even the most serious sins are celebrated and people raise flags to it. There is no more shame. Shame is important, especially in this first century culture. Because if your name and your reputation was besmirched, that was a serious dishonor. In a culture where honor and family reputation is the most important asset, your name was the most important asset you had. And if your name was besmirched, that stain was dealt with swiftly and harshly. But as we will see in Matthew's gospel next week, God willing, Joseph, a man of deep compassion, even though the the law called for her stoning, He decided that he would instead divorce her quietly. Even though they were not yet married, the betrothal, the engagement, was considered so binding that to break that engagement required the legal process of divorce. At the end of the one-year period, the bride would then take in a great celebration, a procession, a parade, where she would be delivered to her husband, where she would join her husband's house, and it was then that the marriage would be consummated. The opening verses that describe Mary make her status very clear. She is a virgin who has never had any sexual relations with any man in any form. In Mary's day, premarital pregnancy had horrific consequences. If the offending woman was not stoned, she was certainly thrown out of her father's house. She's brought shame on her father's house. And so the father would throw her out of the house and she would end up living in the street as a beggar or a prostitute. Horrible. In that day, there were no careers for single mothers. There were no social welfare programs. Their children were forever branded as illegitimate. Now, all of this cultural background is to make one crucial point. In Mary's day, a young girl's future, in fact, her very life, depended on one thing, her virginity, maintaining her chastity and her honor. 
If she were not stoned to death, she faced a miserable future, a future that would likely mean a slow death from poverty and starvation. Everything depended on her reputation. Everything depended on her honor. Therefore, this reputation and this virginity was carefully guarded. And so, to this virgin named Mary, the angelic messenger Gabriel comes with a most unusual greeting. He says at verse 28, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. This is the source of the prayer introduced by the Roman church as early as the 7th century that goes, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. While that prayer borrows its content from this passage, the prayer, popular in the Roman church, has caused a misunderstanding for many people. And that misunderstanding concerns why Mary was chosen to do this. In the scripture, let's notice that Gabriel greets Mary with the words, favored one. He says, rejoice, highly favored one. The word favored is in the Greek text related to the word grace, and thus the Roman prayer, which refers to Mary as full of grace. But it's important that we not misunderstand the meaning here. Mary is favored by God not because she has done something to deserve God's favor. Instead, she is favored as a result of God's grace. Although Mary is indeed a pious woman, she has lived, a, her short life has been lived in righteousness. Gabriel's meaning is that because of no merit of her own, God is about to look upon her with his favor. And by God's grace, he, God, has chosen Mary for an amazing, extraordinary task. She is not favored by God because of who she is. She is favored by God because of who he is. In a sense, the meaning of the announcement is, Mary, God's grace is upon you. This is a favor to you. It is a gift. In our modern parlance, what the angel is saying, Mary, God is about to do you a great favor. And so Mary, this young girl from Nazareth, is, according to verse 29, troubled by the words that have been delivered by the angel. Let's consider this favor, this gift that is about to come to Mary. She doesn't know it yet, but we do. She's about to be asked by the angel to bear the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now think about that for a moment. When we think of God's grace upon us, when we think of God's grace upon us, when we think of God blessing us, with his favor, it can be very easy for us to have an expectation 
Well, now that God has, is favoring me, I'm set for the good life. I'm going to have smooth sailing for now on that God has shed his grace on me. When we think of God blessing us, we might think that what's coming our way is wealth and health, social status. But when we consider Mary, it is clear we have to reevaluate our expectation when it comes to God's grace and his favor upon us. For Mary, God's favor meant enduring the shame of supposedly conceiving a child out of wedlock. For Mary, it meant a life on the run as she and Joseph fled to Egypt to escape Herod's order to kill her child. For Mary, it meant watching her son being executed on a Roman cross. That doesn't sound very favorable. And so here's the point. Being acceptable, being comfortable, these have never been the measure of God's blessing. They will never be the indicators of God's favor. And perhaps we can identify in some small measure to Mary's trouble. Being obedient to God's call on our lives can often present difficulty. When we make it known that we are followers of Christ, when we tell the world, I am a born-again Christian, we are likely to face ostracism, to be cast-outs, to face persecution as we're mistreated at work, sometimes by members of our own families. But whether it is Mary or any of us, we have all been called by God to serve him. And since that is the case, that we are called by God to serve him in some way, let's consider what the angel Gabriel says to Mary at verse 28. He says, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Those words should soothe our hearts as they no doubt soothe the heart of Mary. Whatever Mary was asked to do, whatever we are asked to do, we can always know, as Gabriel says, the Lord is with you. And so the angel reassures Mary, telling her not to be afraid. Why? Because when God gives us his grace, when he puts his favor upon us, it is always accompanied by his personal presence. When God does us the favor of calling us to himself and when God calls us to serve him, he promises us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, I am with you always. After Gabriel reassures Mary, the angel now tells her about her role, what assignment will be given to her. Let's look, please, at 31. The angel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever forever. 
and of his kingdom, there will be no end. The child that Mary will carry is to be given the name Jesus. And when we read or say Jesus, we are using a Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Yeshua. Mary and Joseph would not have called their child Jesus. They would have called him Yeshua, which means in Hebrew, the Lord is salvation. Now, many children of that day would have been named Yeshua or Joshua, but only this one would be named by God himself. The Lord is salvation. Only this one would be called the Son of the Most High. Only this one would establish a kingdom that would stand for all of eternity. Not a political kingdom, a kingdom that would degrade with time, but a divine kingdom that would endure forever, an eternal kingdom. A kingdom not of brick and of mortar, but a kingdom of righteousness and of light. A kingdom that is not entered by birthright, but is entered on one's knees. By God's grace, Mary had been selected to bear the Savior, the long-awaited Messiah foretold by the prophets. And so Mary now asks a question. Look at 34. She speaks and she asks a question. She says, how can this be, since I do not know a man? Meaning, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now that's a legitimate question, don't you think? How am I going to bear a child if I'm a virgin? But before we hear the answer, let's compare Mary's question to the one that was asked by Zechariah when Gabriel told him that Elizabeth, his wife, would bear a son. Look please back at verse 18. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? How, how do I know I'm going to have a son? My wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. Here, I'm an old man, he says, and my wife is well advanced in years. Zechariah's question is obviously one of doubt. How can this be? We're both old. We, we can't have children. Let's look further at the exchange, verse 19. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. In comparison, let's look again at Mary's question. If we look at 34, she also asks, how can this be? Mary asks, how can this be? But Mary's question doesn't come from a place of doubt. It comes from a place of faith. She doesn't know how it will happen, but she knows that it will happen. We know that her question is not one of doubt but of faith because of the way Gabriel responds to her. She, Gabriel doesn't respond to Mary like he did to, to Zech, Gabriel doesn't respond to Mary like he did to Zechariah. Zechariah was admonished. Mary is not. 
The fact that she asks this question, how can this be, gives us vital information about Mary because it confirms her virginity. How, how can I have a child? I'm a virgin. Well, here's why it confirms it for us. The most logical conclusion that Mary would draw after being told by the angel that she would conceive a child is that Gabriel meant that after her engagement was over, she would lay with Joseph, a baby would be conceived and born. Wouldn't that be the natural conclusion? Mary, you're going to have a baby. Well, I'm engaged to be married. I'm, after a certain period of time, I'll be with Joseph and I'll have a baby. But Mary recognized that's not what was going to happen here. She recognized that the child that was spoken of would have supernatural origin. Mary recognized that the Son of the Most High, that is the Son of God, could not have a human father. He could only have a divine origin. She realized that whatever she was being asked to do would require the work of God. And because it required the work of God, it would require a miracle. She didn't understand how, but she did believe that with God all things are possible. And so because her question came from a place of faith, the angel would answer her question. Although neither Mary nor we can fully understand how this miraculous conception took place, we are given some insight. Let's look, please, at verse 35. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. There are many instances in the Bible where we are told that the Holy Spirit came upon someone. But what is unique and significant here is the Holy Spirit and its overshadowing power. Gabriel says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. These words are likely meant to remind us of an earlier time when another supernatural conception took place. The day of creation. At Genesis 1-2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the and darkness was on the face of the deep. And listen, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We can likely see some correspondence between God hovering over the face of the water and God's Holy Spirit overshadowing the waters of Mary's womb. While the child conceived in Mary was not created, it was a work of God's miraculous power. An important point needs to be made. When we think of the conception and the birth of Jesus, we must remember that the Son of God has always existed. 
He is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. John says in the introduction to his gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And so in terms of the creative aspect of this birth, it is not that Jesus was created because the second person of the Trinity has always existed along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But in terms of our limited understanding, what was conceived and therefore born to Mary may be thought of as the human aspect of Christ. John continues in his gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Why is the doctrine of the virgin birth so important? What the reader believes about the virgin birth has crucial implications on how that person will view the rest of the Gospels as a whole. Those who dismiss the virgin birth do so because they're leaning on their own understanding and therefore reject the idea that our God is a God of miraculous, a God of miracles who can do miraculous things. But to reject the idea of a virgin birth puts the reader in a perilous place. And here's why. To do so suggests that such a person can assume the responsibility of deciding what biblical revelations are true and which are not. Well, I believe this, but this goes against science, so I can't believe that. Such a view says I'm willing to believe that Jesus can give me eternal life. I like that. But I'm unwilling to believe this account on, a, on, a, on, on the grounds that it, it doesn't, it's not supported by science. Well, the person who rejects the virgin birth is likely to re reject the resurrection of Christ. And it's the resurrection that assures us of eternal life. We're not in a position to excise or include what we like or what we don't like. Those who reject parts of the scripture can hardly accept all of Christ. And it is all of him that we need for salvation. The person, who, however, who accepts the truth of the virgin birth is not only prepared to believe the whole of Scripture, but is prepared to believe that our God is a God of miracles and that our God has the power to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine. And so let's hear the archangel's final words on the matter as he puts the capstone on the explanation to Mary about how she will conceive a child. Verse 37, finally Gabriel declares, with God, nothing is impossible. When we are worried, when we are fearful, when we are confronted by doubt, 
Those are important words to remember. With God, nothing is impossible. Gabriel has now completed his mission. He's delivered the message that he was sent to deliver. And now, he must wait for Mary to give her answer. God will never ask anyone to do something without their consent. God does not force himself on anyone. I'm not suggesting that he had physical contact with Mary, but my point is God will never ask us to do something unless we agree to it. And so, between verses 37 and 38, we can envision that there is a pause here. A pause of anticipation as Gabriel awaits Mary's response. Frederick Buchner, in his book, Peculiar Treasures, describes the moment between these two verses, and he does so with poetic license. And he writes this. Mary struck the angel as hardly old enough to have a child at all, let alone this child. But he had been entrusted with a message to give, and he gave it. He told her what the child was to be named and who he was to be and something about the mystery that was to come upon her. You mustn't be afraid, Mary, he said. And as he said it, he only hoped she wouldn't notice that beneath his great golden wings, he himself was trembling with fear to think that the whole future of creation now hung on the answer of a teenager. And see now Mary's response at verse 38, and we'll end here. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Let's pray.